Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. Bill Radke here. So glad to be together with you for the next hour where, you know, as we do every Friday, we get together and figure out what happened this week. What does it all mean with our panel of journalists? And this week, that means from the South Seattle Emerald, reporter and co-host of Clapback Culture on Converge Media, Mike Davis. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Good to have you here. Crosscut science and environment reporter Hannah Weinberger. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. Great to see you. And Kitsap's son, military reporter, Josh Farley. Great to have you back again. Thanks. Good to see you, Bill. And I mean see, because I can see these folks because we're live streaming this thing on Facebook and YouTube. So listening to us, very, very good. Watching us, because we are very attractive people, it's also a great idea. And you can just find us by searching for uh, KOW Public Radio. Okay, let's get into the big news this week. We're going to start with COVID, and the, the big news there uh, had two parts, really. Number one, Governor Inslee announced vaccines are required for all school employees. You know, he's already required them for other state employees and healthcare workers. This week, it's schools, public schools, private schools, charter schools, higher education, not the students, but anyone who comes in contact with students, teachers, coaches, bus drivers, child care providers. Unless you get a medical or religious exemption, you've got until October 18th to be fully vaccinated. And that means you're two weeks out from your second shot or you could lose your job. And the governor repeated, this is safe. Don't necessarily ask for my medical judgment or even Dr. Shah's medical judgment or Dr. Fauci's medical judgment. Go to your physician and ask them about the science of this vaccine. And I am confident that your physician will tell you this is as effective, as safe as anything he or she has ever given you. Although, to be fair, today's Washington Post tells us, quote, federal health officials are investigating emerging reports that the Moderna vaccine may be associated with a higher risk of a heart condition in younger adults than previously believed. Still, our state's largest teachers union is on board with the vaccine mandate. This is all designed to ensure that we get off of uh, this COVID roller coaster that we've been on with our schools and having cohorts A's and B's and schools are open and schools are closed. And we want to make sure that when schools open in the fall, they can remain open. That's the president of the Washington Education Association, Larry Delaney. OK, so more on the vaccine mandate in schools in a moment. I just want to give you COVID news number two, which is that you have to wear masks indoors again, starting Monday. Everybody over age five, vaccinated or not, unless you have a medical condition that prevents you from wearing a mask or you're all alone or you're in a small private indoor gathering or an office not easily accessible to the public and everyone there is vaccinated, if those things don't apply, you're supposed to mask up. And that includes schools, which some parents do not like. A parent named Kylie Walker helped coordinate more than 100 Unmask Our Kids rallies. I think that we all know how dangerous COVID is. We all understand that COVID's a thing and that people are getting sick. And I hope that they don't think any parent is against that part of it. It's just our kids, our choice. Okay, but just don't protest your local school board, says the statewide school superintendent. Your local school board is not making this decision, whether it's mask or vaccines. This is a requirement of the state of Washington with the power of law and a public health crisis where lives have been lost and will continue to be lost if we don't react. Please take your respectful civil discourse where it belongs, and local school boards are not that place. Let them operate school under the law. 
Okay, so that's the COVID update. I'd like to hear from all of you. Uh, Hannah, if I could start with you, what are what are the unions saying about this? You know, there has been some pushback from unions, including the you know Washington Federation of State Employees, which has more than 40,000 uh, members. <laughs> that's a significant number of people. And the concerns um, tend to align with unemployment assistance. You know, is there going to be a possibility of benefits for people who separate from their employer for this purpose? Um, or, you know, is the state prepared to handle a possible mass exodus of employees who don't want to handle these new requirements? Um, and I empathize with people who are concerned about being in a precarious employment position. Right now, the state looks like it's going to um, add people to the queue for unemployment benefit claims. Uh, but if you are separating from your employer and it is not uh, the employer's fault for putting you in a precarious position, uh, you know, they followed the protocol correctly, you're probably not going to have a very strong claim. And also, if you do manage to be in a position where your claim is supported, you're still joining, you know, thousands of people who have been in the unemployment benefits claimant line for months. And it can take nearly half a year for your contested claim to be heard by the Office of Administration Administrative Hearings. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm nervous for a lot of people. I do have thoughts about how healthcare workers are going to factor into this. Um, yeah. I yeah. was going to, if that's actually a good, <laughs> uh, it's a good segue to, to Mike, because Mike, you were telling us that's a concern of, of yours particularly is the, the reaction among healthcare workers. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. But before that, I think that I would, add on to that, just mm -hmm. the idea that so many Americans have their health care tied to their employment anyway. So if you fire people for not being vaccinated, now not only do they not have employment, they don't even have access to their health care. So where does it leave these people who are the people who are obviously at the highest risk of catching COVID and having really severe symptoms. But outside of that, I mean, when you look at healthcare workers, I mean, if you're talking about nurses or anyone who works in hospitals who have been unvaccinated up until this point, why force them to get vaccinated now with the threat of losing their job? I mean, where will it leave the rest of us if we have this mass loss of jobs for people in the healthcare industry? That seems more dangerous than productive at this point. And, and I would just jump in and say that Meanwhile, the state faces such an enormous pressure to make sure that the school year goes on. I mean, show of hands here, how well did uh, Zoom, Zoom school go this past year? I think most people would say that it was absolutely terrible. I'm trying um, to think of the right hand gesture to give you here. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, that one. Exa exactly. Um, and so, you know, you have that as the, as the backdrop. And, you know, they, the state, uh, Governor Inslee, they need this basically to kick in yesterday, um, October 8, when you say October 18th, you know, you're talking about with the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, you need what, five weeks, I, I, if I remember right, or even six weeks, I think, you know, you got to get one shot, then you got to get your second shot, and it takes like two weeks to kick in. So um, we're, we're working with um, a, a, a tremendous time pressure um, to, to get this done, particularly when it pertains to schools. I think Absolutely. it was three weeks for me. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. It was, it was three weeks for me as well. But um, just to go back to the idea of forcing the teachers to get vaccinated, it's just really interesting because the kids can't, if you're a kid under 12, you can't be vaccinated. The school district in Seattle in particular has already backtracked on having virtual options. So, I mean, 
you force teachers to get vaccinated who don't want to get vaccinated and they end up quitting. Well, where does it leave our students then? Hannah, any any thoughts about uh, well, any we've raised a whole bunch of questions about about um, unions, about about uh, essential workers, job loss. What what are you thinking? What, what else should I listen yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's hard for me. It gets harder for me to empathize with people who don't want to be vaccinated as the pandemic goes on. Mm. Um, I do realize that there are some people who are in. Um, you know, medical situations where that's not a possibility. And thankfully, you know, there are still loopholes in regulations that we have where people who do have legitimate medical claims can be exempted. And hopefully their employers will work with them to find safe ways for them to continue to do their work. Um, I also realize that some people have jobs where they don't feel like they can afford to take a day to recover from a vaccine because their employers aren't going to give them that sick day. Um, or they still need to take their kids to school if in-school learning is still happening. Um, this is tangentially related, but I think a lot about healthcare workers just because that's where I've done a lot of reporting. And I feel like if people are worried at this point about a large-scale exodus of healthcare workers because of this mandate, you know, there are uh, nursing associations like in Oregon that have put out statements where they're saying, oh, you know, we really need to be concerned about this happening. Like, you haven't been paying attention because nurses, doctors, et cetera, are so burned out at this point. Like there are so many other reasons for them to leave. Yes. Um, you know, I think, you know, Josh may have even done some reporting um, on how overburdened hospitals are right now, not even because of COVID patients, but because it's just so hard to find places for outpatients to go. Um, so I'm really concerned about nurses and doctors for many additional reasons. And we need to have a lot more support for them from the state and from hospital associations. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing across the state, uh, more and more hospital beds are being filled up, particularly amongst uh, the un unvaccinated. You know, we were at about 30 a day a month ago, we're about 100, you know, uh, rolling week average here. Um, severe nursing shortage definitely is playing, playing into that, no question. The good news, the silver lining here is, of course, not as many people are, are dying. The treatments are better. Vaccines clearly work um, from the, the data, which is we've all lived... The, We've all lived the data of, of seeing that the, the blunt even of something as contagious as the Delta variant. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll note, um, because we have talked uh, about kids here, is you know kids under 12, I interviewed a family, a Bainbridge Island family, uh, a little 15-month-old named Sailor Sumsky. I, of course, couldn't interview her, but uh, her parents uh, <laughs> participating in a vaccine trial at Seattle Children's. Uh, there were some six, five, 6,000 people that wanted to be a part of this trial for children uh, to get their, they're doing the Pfizer vaccine um, and uh, at a much lower level dose, um, of course, for kids um, at ages like 15 months, but that's coming and that's happening too. So um, there may be a time, maybe maybe not to in too distant future where, where, where kids, where we see emergency approval for kids too. Can I ask about that, Josh? Did this family say they had any different misgivings about giving even a lower dose shot to to a baby compared to other people in the family, or was it just a no no brainer for them? Uh, pretty much a no brainer. Um, so, um, uh, Sailor's mother JD is a um, she is a nurse, and she believes very much. And as the uh, you know the 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 doctor that's carrying out this research at Seattle Children's um, pointed pointed out to me, Doctor England, um, you know we have four hundred million plus doses that have been administered. Um, it is a lower level. 
Um, but as a family, they talked about it. And that certainly is something to think about. Um, but they decided to go for it. Mm-hmm. How is uh, how's the social media treating that family? Mm, good question. So uh, certainly uh, um, there's there's people that have pushed back um, on, on social media. Um, everyone has a right um, to their opinion. But also a lot of people, uh, obviously, um, you know, they, they viewed it as nothing short of kind of winning the lottery. You know, you have 100 spots for 100 kids, more than 5,000 people wanting to participate. Um, and I will add this, you know, we live in a state where 70, 71 and a, and a half percent, according to Washington State Department of Health, um, have initiated vaccination. So, you know, you're talking more than seven, we're at seven and 10 people now. So they're hoping they didn't get the, uh, the placebo, that they got the actual exactly. vaccine. And I will, and we'll say in January when it's uh, the, the the study is unblinded, anyone who did get the placebo um, has the option um, to oh. to yeah to get. The so they're thing. in, yeah. Oh, okay, so they are in. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right, uh, Mike. Anything else? Do you feel we covered it? Anything else you think our listeners ought to know uh, for for this week on on COVID developments? Um. Just to piggyback again on Hannah's point about doctors and nurses having so many other things to worry about. I think that's the same place we are with teachers. I mean, by and large, it seems like teachers and teachers unions are behind having teachers be vaccinated. But this is just another thing to put on teachers plates who are overworked and who have been struggling through the pandemic anyway. That's just a big thing to stand on. But like Josh said, seven out of 10 people here who can vaccinated have already started the process. So it doesn't seem like this is going to be like a catastrophic loss of workers. It's just government stepping in and like enforcing their boundaries and imposing their will on people to put things into their bodies. Hannah mentioned medical exemptions. There's also a religious exemption. Uh, the state school superintendent at least said they're not, you know, they, and I think this is the case for state workers in general. I, I guess I'm assuming uh, but but the state school superintendent said, we're not going to make you get a signed note from your clergy. If you say you have a religious exemption, then you have one. Um, and I just I, I, I think if you're about to be fired because you don't want this vaccine, I would think it'd be very easy to honestly say that your God doesn't want you to take this shot. You know, I've heard a lot of people tell me that they know what God wants. So I'm curious how how that you know, not philosophical, supposedly, but religious exemption is actually going to, to uh, play out if people are faced with the loss of their jobs. Okay, well, let's pause it there. Um, you know, we'll, we'll surely talk about COVID developments uh, next week. And you're listening to Week in Review, by the way. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm here with Crosscut Science and Environment reporter Hannah Weinberger, with Kitsap's son, military reporter Josh Farley, with South Seattle Emerald reporter and the co-host of Clapback Culture on Converge Media, Mike Davis. Um, and I want to, before we take a break, I want to get to another, um, an international development that, of course, is a local development to everywhere. You've got the Taliban retaking control of Afghanistan. Thousands of Afghans may be coming to the, the Puget Sound area. There are several refugee resettlement agencies here in SeaTac, the leader of Lutheran Community Services Northwest, David Dewey, says that they are helping people who qualify for a special immigrant visa because they've assisted the U.S. in some way. They've helped the U.S. military or friends of the U.S., and so they don't feel safe. For obvious reasons, they just feel like they're going to be retaliated against, so they, for fear of safety, they need to flee. 
Dewey says whether more families make it here will depend on whether they can find a ride on a military plane, an American plane, or a flight from a neighboring country. The Taliban have shut down commercial flights out of Afghanistan. In King County, the senior director of Afghan Health Initiative, Ariana Anjaz, is expecting 2,000 families to resettle here in the coming weeks. Many of our uh, refugees coming into the area, they have mixed feelings about coming here. The first being that you know, they've left their families behind, but they're also thankful that they have brought themselves to safety. She says some of these refugees fled Afghanistan with just the clothes on their backs. Mike Davis, what, what questions do you have about how this refugee resettlement is going to work in Washington? I think the major question that I have is where? I mean, we're already facing a shortage of housing for folks in our region. I think that welcoming these refugees in is absolutely the right thing to do. I just think with everything going on, topics that we're going to discuss later on this very show, Hmm. where are we going to put them? Yeah. Anyone else? Um, I'm a little concerned about the capacity of nonprofits here to be able to resettle people and to help them not only find a place, but thrive when they do. You know, a lot of these nonprofits do so much work already every year and they only have the capacity to work with a couple hundred people. If we're facing 2000 people coming into this region, you know, it's gonna be a big haul to find, you know, communities for them to, to um, get set up with for mentorship or support, um, to figure out how to feed them, how to house them, how to get them, you know, employment. Um, so I really hope that members of our community realize it's not just about, you know, taking two years to build an ADU to, to find a place to put someone, but like you can drive to the airport right now. You can help with, uh, meal support. Like this is not the time for the Seattle freeze. Like we do have organizations (laughs) here that help, but it's incumbent upon us to do our part too. And by the way, if you think of this as, as refugee resettlement being some sort of uh, Seattle-ish or progressive cause, I don't know if you noticed that there's been really a bipartisan uh, show of support and welcoming of these refugees from the, from the uh, Republican leaders in both the House and Senate, uh, from, I, I don't know about county by county, but I saw the Pierce County Council passed a, a resolution welcoming refugees. They were citing the long history uh, of of welcoming refugees, like uh, supporting Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees in the 70s. So the politics were um, didn't fall along that um, uh, a divide that has seems to become so so typical. And and I would also add to I echo Hannah and Mike, um, but also, you know, we're in the acute phase of this crisis, clearly. Um, there are still Americans. Um, we just heard from the president about uh, Americans coming home. We're mm-hmm. we're there. We're we've we've gotten only that far. But you're right. There has been bipartisan sentiment as well um, in terms of resettling. And Josh, uh, you are the military reporter at the Kitsap Sun. There's there's uh, obviously a major. This is a military story among many other things. And there's a connection to Joint Base Lewis McCord. There absolutely is. I mean, I don't need to tell you. Anytime you drive I five through the Tacoma area, you often see planes that look like they're almost just suspended in air over, over the freeway, right? Well, that's, that's the, these planes that we saw, these, uh, these awful harrowing images. Uh, it's called the C-17 Globemasters built by Boeing. Its nickname is the Moose. There's, uh, I, I wanna say there's um, more than 220 of them in the entire, uh, in, in our armed forces. 
uh, roughly 40, a little more than 40, I believe, are at JBLM. Um, they, the reason that they are um, really uh, effective at airlifts is because they can pretty much take off and land on a postage stamp. For really powerful engines, um, they can hold 585,000 pounds upon takeoff. Um, they can land on a runway as short as 3,500 feet. Um, you might remember, some of us some of the, uh, might remember um, a C-17 was entrusted with moving Keiko, the whale that played Free Willy, um, moved from the Oregon coast when he went back to the wild off in the waters off of Iceland. Um, so they're, they're, uh, they're, they're pretty uh, amazing aircraft. And from what I'm hearing, what I'm reading, it certainly seems as if, um, you know, the pilots and the crews, this is their, they, they, I mean, this is their critical time to, to do what they do. Um, and the Pentagon wants up to 9,000 people each day um, out, of, out of Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, um, there was an image I know posted on social media that showed, I think, 640 people on one, on one of these aircraft. By the way, there's only one toilet on, on a, um, a C-17. So, um, yeah, it's not ideal, but um, they're, get, they're getting people out. And um, I know uh, from, from some other reading, I, I did, you know, Kabul as, a, as an international airport where it is. It sits in a valley. Obviously, it's really hot. It's also 6,000 feet above sea level. So you've got less dense air, um, very thin air. It makes it hard on these planes. Oh, and by the way, there's a siege going on all around you with potential weapons fire. Um, so, that, that, you know, we, 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 of course, saw this, this very tragic situation where, according to the New York Times reporting, um, not only people clung to the plane, but they also um, it sounds like may have been killed um, when the uh, in in the wheel wells when the when the landing gear retracted upon upon leaving. Um, there's an investigation that we'll we'll see where that goes, but um, it's a it's a it's it's certainly um, uh, just a deeply troubling scene to to watch this uh, and this whole crisis unfold before our eyes. But we do have very much a local. Uh, element indeed um, uh, a plane that is is doing some incredibly valiant work I think um, in in helping get through the crisis any any questions for our military reporter or just anything to add on Af Afghan resettlement feel we covered it for now team yeah sure. I mean I think oh go for it Mike no no go ahead <laughs> I, I it's hard for me as somebody who's been thinking almost exclusively about COVID for 18 months to see photos of people <laughs> in a plane like that, I realize that that is not the most immediate threat to life and limb for these people. But I really do hope that, um, you know, cities, counties around the country are planning on ways to help people, you know, get rapid tested, help people find vaccinations once they get here, if that's something that they're willing to do, um, or, you know, try to do some sort of um, positive interviewing with them to try to get them on board with vaccination. Um, just to help make sure that these people, if they go through the effort of getting to the United States, that they they don't get here and immediately have a medical crisis. I absolutely agree. And I was actually going to ask Josh, as the military reporter, if he had any background info on that. Um, I had read before my show last night that there had been recently an outbreak of COVID at the U.S. Embassy. So a lot of those people who are trying to get to the airport may have also already been exposed. And in the clip that we played here, President Biden said that he guaranteed transport to the airport. But in reports that I read yesterday, the U.S. Embassy had said that they couldn't guarantee safe passage to the airport 
and for people who are not already in the capital city actually get there to get out, how are they supposed to get there? And I just want to know, Josh, if you had any more information on any of those situations. I don't, I don't. And it sounds absolutely horrible for those folks. Um, just addressing the, the, the COVID uh, part, part of this, uh, the, the one good thing is um, when they reach our shores, of course, um, we have testing supplies and we certainly have uh, ample supplies of vaccine that that's good. Wish I had more to offer you, but it's, it's an emerging story that we're, we're, we're obviously keeping our eye on. Um, and um, I think we're going to see a lot more reporting in the days ahead. Mike, have you heard anything from, you know, the Afghan community in South King County? I know that's where we tend to see um, most of people from that population, which I'm really grateful that at least there are people here who already, you know, have that experience that refugees can, can connect with. Right. And at this time, I have not, but that is my plan. I mean, I think you spoke already to all of the nonprofits we have here that are doing the work. Well, because they already have that community of folks here, it is interesting to see not only what they're doing, but how we can all support them in that work to help these people. So at this time, no, but in the near future, that will emerge. Mike Davis is with the South Seattle Emerald and Converge Media. We've got Hannah Weinberger here from Crosscut and Josh Farley from the Kitsap Sun. And as we mentioned, the housing will be an issue. It's already an issue. It'll be an issue for, for new people coming here. And, uh, and we are going to touch on housing solutions and, uh, and, and controversies and more when we come back and continue telling you what happened this week and what it all means. I'm Bill Radke. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I look on YouTube or Facebook, I search KOW Public Radio, and I can see Josh Farley and Hannah Weinberger and Mike Davis because we're live streaming the show. Uh, I hope you can join us. Continuing now with the Week in Review, this week the Seattle City Council passed new restrictions on police crowd control tactics, as KUOW reporter Casey Martin told us. Last summer, after Seattle police used tear gas, blast balls, and more on protesters, the council banned those less-than-lethal weapons. But a federal judge stopped the ban from taking effect. Now the council has passed a new ordinance that they think will be approved by the feds. Bill sponsor Lisa Herbold says certain weapons, like pepper ball launchers, can only be used if there's a threat of violence. The purpose isn't to move people, but is intended to mitigate or limit the likelihood that somebody is seriously hurt in a crowd. Mike Davis, you called this new legislation a compromise and a weak one. Will you fill us in on what happened there? Well, I mean, the original legislation really just stopped police from being able to use all of these harmful weapons on protesters. I mean, they call them less than lethal, but if you were anywhere near the front lines, that language is extremely misleading to anyone who doesn't have that experience. And um, I understand with the consent decree how that got pushed back on, but this new legislation just leaves so many loopholes and so many gray areas for the police to really be able to do what they wanted to do the whole time. And when we're in a city with the police department who had like, for an example, a direct order to not cover their badge number during protests. And then when you're out on the front lines and you see all the police are just still covering their badge numbers, it's like, they already have shown that they won't take direct orders. They've already shown that there's a severe lack of accountability within the police department. So when you 
put forth this type of legislation that has all of these obvious loopholes where they can still use all of these weapons in these special circumstances. It just feels like the police will do whatever they want. So they police can use tear gas and, and pepper ball launchers if there's the threat of violence? That The language is if there is, and I have my notes right here, um, a violent disturbance. So it's like when you have a protest, I mean, last time they had a protest, we had a situation where the police posted pictures of a potential bomb that turned out to be a candle. Well, if you can mistake a candle for a bomb, then I, I don't understand what you mean with that disturbance. And then when it comes to like using rubber bullets, for example, um, Lisa Herbold says that folks wanted that option to remain in case there was a fear that property would be damaged. Well, every time there's a protest, the police fear that property can be damaged. So really, if you have a large crowd of people marching up a street, well, now police can just use rubber bullets because they can say that they fear that there was this damage. Um, it also leaves loopholes to like who can decide when to use pepper spray, for example. And if you're saying a police officer who has been trained in the last 12 months, that's all it takes to decide. I mean, when those calls get made, the public won't even know who makes the call. We still don't know who made the call at the East Precinct. So it, it's just really tough when you have all of these openings for the Seattle Police Department in particular because of the history that we have with them and the way that they seem to skirt all accountability and rules and direct orders. But yeah. Mike, one more question for, for Mike, if I can, because you brought up something important. Isn't this uh, not the city's call anymore because of the, of the, the consent decree, the U.S. Justice Department rules about what the city and the police department can do? Well, yes, yes, that is true. Under the consent decree, they do have the final say. And that is that's exactly what we just saw with the legislation from Sawant, where they said um, if they can't use all of these, then it could actually lead to more lethal force. Now, whether that's true or not is open for debate. But yes, the judge does have the power to supersede all of these rulings. So even this right here, we don't know if it's going to go forward or not at this point. Yeah, I, I was curious about that too, Mike, that it seems like it's a highly subjective, you know, kind of finding that they would make in, a, in what can be a chaotic situation. And isn't there always kind of that way to say that it's dangerous, no matter no matter what happens. Um, I am curious to know, to know from you, though, on, on since you've been following this, uh, is does law enforcement, if this holds up, if this holds water, will they have to argue for for at least for that justification um, more forcefully now? Will they have to document it um, in, in a different way with, with this, or does it not really make any kind of a kind of a change? Well, that's always not very clear when you're talking about the Seattle Police Department, because things that they should do doesn't always align with the things that they will actually do. I mean, there's so many committees and so much oversight of the Seattle Police Department, but so often there's things that we see right on camera, like a kid getting pepper sprayed in the face where you just don't see any repercussion or you know it gets elevated and then absolutely nothing happens. So that's a great question. I just don't know how to answer. Yeah, those are really great points, you guys. And and on, on the topic of what happens when you've been assaulted by police, you know, I'm really glad to see that there's a component of this bill 
um, that seemingly gives people a, a pathway for legal action when they're assaulted by police using these measures. But like Mike said, it remains to be seen what actually happens from that. And you know, in this conversation to tie everything back to COVID, I think a lot about how the decisions that we make subjectively um, affect everyone around us. And mentioning that you can have uh, a member of the police force who's been on the force for 12 months making decisions about when a violent action is happening and when to use these you know, pseudo-military crowd control measures um, can leave lingering impacts. A lot of people who live in areas um, where protests happened ended up finding that the environment in which they live is permeated by chemicals for weeks after this. A lot of protesters who were nonviolent uh, were concerned about medical issues that they experienced, and they're still not sure whether being around some of these crowd control measures may have affected things like their fertility. Um, so I think when we talk about, you know, who has the ability to make some of these decisions, we need to be really cognizant of the fact that people who may not even be involved with what a policeman or a policewoman or police person thinks it qualifies as a violent engagement are, are going to be caught in some of these indirect impacts. You're absolutely right. In situations, I think it's easy for us to kind of look at it like, well, this situation is over there or this is going to happen over there. But when we're talking about these protests, this happened on Capitol Hill. This happened mm -hmm. in people's neighborhoods. There was a really infamous um, call that came in to city council during public comment of a guy who talked about his his infant baby uh, breathing in pepper spray and foaming at the mouth. I mean, he wasn't protesting. He wasn't in the streets. He was literally just sitting in his home. So we're talking about neighborhoods right now. We're talking about families. We're talking about people being affected, whether they're protesters or not. It seems like it, this would have been a way more serious issue and that the SPD would have put more effort towards keeping the peace. But sometimes you have situations where they might exacerbate what's going on on the streets. And now this is a violent situation and now the door is open for them to still use pepper spray. So I just, this new legislation doesn't make me as a citizen feel any safer. Um, I think the piece that Hannah mentioned about having an option for people who are a victim of these things, being able to sue, uh, maybe that'll help. But at the end of the day, if there is a lawsuit, that's just taxpayer dollars anyway. It's not like the Seattle Police Department is gonna have to foot that bill, it's going to be citizens like you and me that are going to pay for that malfeasance anyway. We've been telling you about new legislation passed this week by the Seattle City Council uh, after passing uh, legislation last year that did not fly with the, uh, the, the judge. Uh, of course, the U.S. Justice Department um, uh, consent decree hovers over all of this, and so the DOJ is going to review these restrictions before they can be implemented. So we'll keep following that for you. We've got Mike Davis here from South Seattle Emerald and Converge Media, Hannah Weinberger of Crosscut, and Josh Farley from the Kitsap Sun. Um, you know, people in suburban King County will often criticize Seattle for its many homeless encampments. And so King County will say, okay, let's create more housing options and take the pressure off Seattle. For example, King County plans to house some folks in a former Silver Cloud Inn in Redmond. And this week, protesters packed a Redmond City Council meeting to oppose that idea. A coalition of neighbors and business owners say they're worried about crime and drug use. Local martial arts school owner Rachel Wong told Como TV she's worried Redmond could turn into Seattle. If homeless come here, it will be dangerous for us to go everywhere. You know Seattle? Seattle, around Seattle, so bad. 
And Jessica McMorrow Stefanoff told Como she wants to know more about what happens after the shelter opens. Maybe the facility can help some people, but there's always going to be some folks that aren't a success story. So what then happens if, if they are kicked out of that facility? Are they going to be parking in my driveway? Mike Davis, I'd like to start with you because you led a panel discussion with journalists on the politics of homelessness that aired on Converge Media. What should our listeners know about this situation in Redmond and, and others around King County? Well, it is the county's say on whether or not this hotel becomes a homeless shelter. The fact that they allow public comment, good on them for hearing from people, but the people don't really have the power to stop this. What I find interesting, though, is that a lot of times in communities, you have a lot of residents who are against homeless encampments or against allowing people to set up camps in parks. But you can't be against that and then also be against the county providing a hotel. I mean, homeless people, people who are unhoused deserve a place to live just like everyone else. You can't say you don't want them in the parks and on the streets and you don't want them in hotels. So it's just really interesting to me that so many citizens just, I mean, what, they just want the unhoused people to evaporate. They have to go somewhere. This seems like a viable short-term option. Long-term, not so much, but in the short-term, this seems like a feasible idea. Don't the people in who live in that area didn't didn't I don't know what where the sim- situations are similar and different, but at the the Red Lion in Renton, um, people there complained about uh, crimes and 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 drug use and linked the. Uh, the homeless shelter conversion from the Red Lion and uh, and folks basically got evicted from there. So what uh, who has the ability to do what going forward here in Redmond, Mike? Well, again, the county gets to decide if the people are there, the, the Redmond elected officials, the Redmond citizens. This is kind of out of their hands. I will also say, though, that those type of reports come from everywhere where you see the unhoused folks living in congregations or like many people at one time. What we don't typically see is any hard evidence that any of those claims are true. So if evidence is presented, of course, we're, we're going to receive it. But a lot of times it's just hearsay and people having the stigma against the homeless. And as far as the claims of like Um, these towns on the outskirts or these other cities not wanting them to be Seattle. Well, the reason why Seattle is the way it is is because Seattle just ends up being so welcoming. Um, I remember in Auburn where they decided that people living in tents was an actual crime and not like a misdemeanor. Like they really wanted to take people to jail for being homeless. Well, if you make homelessness a crime in your city, of course the homeless are going to have to come to Seattle. And that's how that problem is created. And I don't want to tell people who to vote for, but I will say that um, Joe Wynn has a much better plan than what I've seen from Dow Constantine, if only just from the perspective of bringing all of those cities back together. I mean, there were like eight cities that decided to divert their taxes away from the county and not support the county's regional effort to approach homelessness. And Joe really wants to go back to bringing everybody together and actually having a regional approach that will re-include all eight of those cities. And I think that that's a better idea because we really are all in this together. Speaking of which, Josh, a a regional approach is this, uh, how do you, what what are your notes on this in, in the Kitsap uh, area? Oh, well, it's kind of, I mean, there's certainly echoes 
um, over here that, that I hate to keep using the crisis word, but we're, we're, we, we would call this a crisis as well, I think, um, in, in, our, in our country and in in, within the Puget Sound region and in, in Kitsap County too. Um, one thing that I, I have to say about Dow Constantine and about King County, you know, it, I think they found, according to the Seattle Times reporting, a rapid, you know, a more rapid way of housing for the unhoused. You know, you got 800 units, a point in time count, I think in 2020, Seattle Times reported 3,300, pro probably more. Um, so, you know, when, when you look at it through the, just the lens of those simple mathematics, there's, um, we, we, we still just have uh, so many more people than housing available uh, for, for them. In, in Kitsap County, uh, we are on the cusp of opening in the next couple of years what's become known as Pendleton Place. Many of our listeners here might recognize that name, Lloyd Pendleton. Um, who in, in Utah, um, you know, really pushed forward the idea of housing first, which is which is germane to our topic that we're talking about right now. Um, in a housing first model, you know, before you can really take care of those underlying things, whether it's chemical dependency, whether it's mental illness, what have you, you got to put a roof over people's heads. Um, and that, so a 72 bed facility for those the hardest to house in, in, in Bremerton is going to be opening off of, just off the highway. Yeah, the main highway here through Kitsap County in, in the next couple of years. Um, I think that's that's part of this in in Seattle and in King County, um, where um, obviously um, it's a it's a bigger issue. But that if you can come up with the housing, that that seems to be the first step. And from from what the legacies of folks like Lloyd Pendleton. Yeah, absolutely. And to Josh and Mike's points about having more people who need housing um, than housing available and when it comes to penalties, you know, I do worry that some mayors who are, uh, you know, allowing these uh, hotel facilities to, to pop up in their districts are looking at that as an excuse to up penalties for camping on public property because there will be thousands more people who cannot take advantage of these hotel situations who then may be subject to increased penalties um, through no fault of their own. So I think that, you know, as, as we introduce these facilities, which are stopgap measures, um, we need to make sure that we're protecting people who can't take advantage of them. And maybe even thinking about this as like, you know, from a selfish perspective, it's good to give people housing. You know, if you're concerned about your kids being exposed to hard drugs, like these facilities will have people who maybe can compassionately help people, you know, find access to safe spaces to, to deal with their addictions. Or, you know, if you have people who are living in congregate housing during a pandemic, maybe help them find a place in a hotel where they're not living in a room with 50 people. You know, there are so many reasons why this is good for everyone. And I wish we lived in a place where, you know, we could pass taxes that weren't so regressive. Uh, you know, these are, these are being funded by sales taxes that end up burdening people who have the least. Uh, but I'm happy for my taxes to go to efforts like this. And I hope that mayors and counties allow these to expand. I agree with that. And I would also hope that, you know, when you listen to the public comment, especially in what come what came out of Redmond, so hard on like the drug use, the drug use, the drug mm -hmm. use. And right now, King County stands, or as it stands on their website, is that they're not stopping people from coming into these facilities because of drugs. And in fact, they're allowing drug use in individual units. Well, when you look at the encampments and the way that um, people have refused sometimes to take shelters as a service, well, one of the reasons that you'll hear if you go talk to these people is uh, 
They won't let me take my personal possessions. They won't let me take my pet. And they have really, really rigorous rules on drugs and alcohol. The step to allow people to use drugs in those hotel units, that's a step towards actually having people accept the shelter that we're offering and getting them out of the streets, getting them out of your parks and putting them in a place where they can actually live and thrive and be themselves. So I think that that's important and you can't allow the public to push back on that because then the public is fighting against themselves. You're listening to Mike Davis from Converge Media and the South Seattle Emerald and Josh Farley from the Kitsap Sun and Hannah Weinberger of Crosscut. And we're going to take a short break and then swat some annoying critters when we return on Weekend Review. But I still want you to, to come back. I still want you to stay. It's so hard to see a mosquito, but it's so easy to see me and Hannah Weinberger and Josh Farley and Mike Davis. It wasn't even a segue. It was like a preview segue. It doesn't yet make sense because I can see us. You can see us because we're on YouTube and Facebook uh, doing Week in Review. Just search for KOW Public Radio. Okay, mosquitoes. Hannah, we've been talking all summer about the new normal here. Are we going to stop looking forward to summer, right? Are our summer's going to be too hot and smoky and on fire? You're working on a story for Crosscut, chipping away at another perk of living here, which is that we don't have a lot of mosquitoes. You know, Bill, increasingly, a lot of the reasons why I moved to Seattle are uh, slowly falling away. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the issues that we do experience in August and September is uh, that we may be for, for a couple weeks of the year aware of mosquitoes. Uh, places like Seattle don't seem to have a lot of mosquitoes relative to the rest of the country. And in fact, we do have much fewer of them than they do out on the east side of the state. Uh, but we do have mosquitoes here, and some of the mosquito species, uh, there are at least 52 of them in Washington state, but two of them, which carry West Nile, are present in nearly every single county in the state. And one reason why that's concerning is because uh, some studies have looked into the conditions that make mosquitoes happy. So what do they need in order to grow, in order to reproduce more quickly, and in order to want to bite us? And it turns out that as the climate changes, there is a chance that those conditions could be more prevalent uh, for more months of the year. And in fact, uh, there's one study that I saw that found that since the 1980s, Seattle has gained one month of mosquito-friendly days. Um, our temperatures are rising into the range where mosquitoes tend to reproduce the fastest. Um, and that's concerning when it comes to the spread of viruses. So it's Hannah, something that we don't have, go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just, I think a lot of us are thinking about drought right now, that, see, that Washington City has gotten drier. And I definitely think of uh, mosquitoes being around when it's wetter. So what gives? So that is a crucial factor. Uh, mosquitoes really like it hot and muggy and wet. They need marshland to reproduce. That's where they'll lay their eggs. But on the west, on the east side of the state, we have a lot of mosquitoes because we have a lot of irrigation. And counterintuitively, a lot of the researchers that I've spoken with have found that drought can actually be a driving factor in the spread of disease. So if you have early season conditions, you know where we're getting more rainfall in the spring, our snowpack is winding up in our rivers earlier in the year and ramping up mosquito populations. Um, and then you have fewer watering holes for horses and birds and other animals that are 
reservoirs are or hosts of some of these diseases, you know, there's going to be more overlap between some of these mosquito species and those horses and birds. Um, so there's a greater chance where we're going to see our mosquito species that have already had a chance to kind of amplify the virus and their population spreading it throughout the year. So be careful where non-deep bug spray and uh, clean out the eaves of your house. And if you have children who leave toys outside that get water in them, make sure to just turn them over a little bit and limit the places where mosquitoes can live near you. Can I, I love say Yes, Josh, go. Sorry, Bill. Uh, can I just say, I, I, I have to, I'm a little, I got to push back just to, to the point of, I'm a little worried about the murder hornets right now. And I know that they just found another nest up in, uh, near Blaine. Yeah. Um, I, I ask this, Hannah, um, out of love and the fact that um, I'm curious if this is like super pressing uh, right now issue. I totally agree. You leave standing water, um, you, you know, th there's things that we can all do, but um, how, how, um, how much should I panic a la panic, you know, since we live in an age of panic uh, about mosquitoes? Don't panic right now. Um, you know, this is something where uh, researchers are only starting to integrate our climate change research and our pest management research, because this is something that we expect to be a concern. So right now, don't worry about going outside and immediately getting West Nile. But we have to start thinking about this now because our mosquito control districts, which help our public health agencies, um, you know, are pretty few in number and our public health agencies are otherwise occupied right now. So there have been studies that have found that they are, you know, under resourced and they don't have the necessary protocols and equipment in place to manage mosquitoes if they do become a problem. And oh, guess what? We also don't really know what's up with mosquitoes right now because we don't have enough people doing monitoring. So there's a chance that a problem could arise and we don't even know about it until it's too late. Okay, so folks, I definitely we have about, agree with you. Oh. <laughs> and don't panic. Uh, we, have a, we have like a minute left and now I desperately need something to smile about. This is how we end the show. Anybody want to nominate anything smile worthy before we say farewell? Hannah just made me panic. Uh, can we can we smile? <laughs> it's the way no, she wait. said don't panic that made me feel yeah. panicky. No, and then no, there's no, not no. enough scientists doing the research. No, and don't panic about about the, the hornets because we have so many people, thousands of people who've been helping the you know Washington State Department of Agriculture track and monitor these things. The reason that we found this nest is because people are keeping an eye on their properties and their neighborhoods. So the more that we are aware of things like this, the less reason we have to panic. So if we start being vigilant now, fewer reasons to panic later. Well, thank you for the panic smile. We are out of time. That is Crosscut Science and Environment reporter Hannah Weinberger inventing the panic smile and no, I hope no. copywriting it. I hope you've just trademarked it and, and never have to work again, although don't stop writing it Crosscut. South Seattle Emerald reporter, co-host of Clapback Culture on Converge Media, Mike Davis, Kitsap Sun Military reporter, Josh Farley. It's great to see all of you. Thank you so much for doing the show today. Thank you, Bill. The show is produced by Sarah Leibovitz and Alec Cowan. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And let's do this again in a week. See you on the next Week in Review. Twelve fifty nine now on KUOW FM Seattle, KUOW Tumwater, KQOW Bellingham. BBC News Hour is coming up next. 
KUOW is an essential resource for fact-based information. Listening to KUOW can help you make smart decisions for yourself, your family, and your community. Contributing listeners provide the largest share of our funding, and that funding helps maintain our editorial independence. As you continue to count on KUOW and NPR, we hope we can count on you. Donate at KUOW.org to support thriving, independent journalism. And thank you. This is KUOW-FM Seattle, KUOW-Tumwater, and KQOW-Bellingham. It's one o'clock.